right, thank you, choir and orchestra. Thank you for that uh, wonderful special, To God Be the Glory, my tribute. Uh, you did it so well. Glad to have you here this morning. Glad to have those of you who are joining us on live stream uh, here and uh, across the seas. We are delighted that you are uh, tuned in. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're, we're continuing our seven churches, seven choices series. Today we're on the sixth of the seven churches. It is the church at Philadelphia. John Kenneth Galbraith in the 20th century for much of the 20th century was a noted economist and he was frequently called upon by uh, political parties and dignitaries to help sort out the economics of what's going on in, in the nation and in the markets. And in his autobiography uh, some years ago, he told the story about his housekeeper. He said this, he said, it had been a wearying day and I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I had a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang. Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House. Get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. He's sleeping, Mr. President, and he said not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk with him. No, Mr. President, I work for him, not you. <laughs> Galbraith says when I called the president back, he could scarcely control his pleasure. He said, tell that woman I want her here in the White House. Emily, the housekeeper, you see, understood an important truth. And that is that she was a servant to one man, and she obeyed his wishes explicitly. Her loyalties were to Mr. Galbraith and him alone. Now, the story of the church at Philadelphia is the story of believers whose loyalty and faithfulness were to one man alone, Jesus Christ. And they're a model because of that to you and me here 2,000 years later of what it means to be faithful servants of Christ. Despite all the pressures around, despite the culture and its influence, despite the, the emphasis on compromising and caving into the culture, they are models for us. And today I want to look at the church at Philadelphia and their fidelity to the gospel and their fidelity to Christ and what a model it is for us. Would you stand with me if you're physically able to do so as we read about the church in Philadelphia beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3 in Revelation, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. 
hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Lord, as we've prayed all through this series, we pray again, let us be the church that hears what you have to say to your people. And I pray from this church and these saints that have come before us that, Father, we would learn lessons from their life and from how they live for you and were faithful to you in the midst of the age and the culture and the pressures that they lived under. Speak to us this morning, Father, from your word. Speak, we ask. Father, I pray that you will use your word to convict us and to transform us all for our good and for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now let me, as I've done with all of these churches, let me give you a little bit of background about the church uh, at Philadelphia. The town of Philadelphia was located about 30 miles east of Sardis, which we looked at last week. They're east of Sardis. Now, like the other churches, they sit on a trade route. There were lots of trade routes, but they sit on one of these trade routes uh, to the interior of the region, of that demographic uh, area. And uh, they benefited from their vineyards. They had lots of vineyards in Philadelphia, and they were known for their sheep. They had lots of pasture lands to graze the sheep on, and so these things were kind of their industry. That's where on the trade route that they made uh, that they made their their income. Their that it caused their economy to thrive. It was the youngest of all the seven churches that we'll look at. It was the youngest city of all of them. It was founded, founded by the rulers of Pergamum. You remember we, we looked at the church of, of, of Pergamum, and the rulers of Pergamum founded the city of Philadelphia. It was named in honor of the Roman emperors Vespasian and Domitian, and its primary worship was pagan. It was to the goddess Anetus. And, of course, they had various other Greco-Roman uh, pagan gods that they worshipped as well. But Anetus was the primary goddess of this particular uh, city area, Philadelphia. And the church at Philadelphia, though, is unique from the other churches. Well, unique and like the church at Smyrna in that uh, this church was not reprimanded. It and Smyrna are the only two that aren't reprimanded by Jesus. They're only affirmed for what they're doing. And he, Jesus has encouragement and he has praise uh, for these believers. Uh, and because of that, this church is, is a model for us. Uh, we can learn much from them. And I want to show you five things this morning. Number one, I want you to see the power of Christ. We learn about the power of Christ uh, because of the church of Philadelphia. Notice how it opens where Jesus says, uh, I am the one who has the key of David. I'm the one who opens uh, doors that no one can shut, and I shut doors that no one can open. And the word key there uh, represents something. It represents the idea of power and authority. Christ 
point here to the church at Philadelphia. Remember, they're going through suffering and persecution. Philadelphia was uh, persecuted. It did suffer. And as a result of that, Jesus is saying this. His point is, I'm the one that has power. I have all authority. And then he says, I'm the one that opens doors, and I'm the one that closes doors. I have the key, the key of David. I'll talk about that in just a bit. But in particular, the point Jesus is making to Philadelphia is that all power belongs to him. By the way, that's something all of us need to remember in difficult times, isn't it? It's something all of us need to remember when we look at the culture and the age around us and we think, well, is there any hope? Yeah, there's hope. Jesus is our hope. Because Jesus has all authority and all power. God, listen, listen, God really is in control. Now, you may think he's not, but there's not a thing going on in your world. There's not a thing going on in your city. There's not a thing going on in your home. There's not a thing going on in your workplace. There's not a thing going on around this globe. There's not a thing going on in this nation that has taken Jesus by surprise. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to him? He's never taken by surprise. Uh, Jesus never has to wring his hands and say, I didn't see that coming. Why? Because he's in complete control, and what's going on in your world is still under his allowance. But things will change. The day is coming when things are going to change. But God is in control. That's why he says, I open doors and I close doors. And when I open a door, nobody can shut the door. And when I close the door, nobody can open that door. Jesus is the key. He says he he, uh, uh, has the key of David. He has that by lineage. He is a descendant of David. He has that by, by the law. And he has it by the will of God. And not only is Jesus the keeper of the keys, but listen, class, he's more than the keeper of the keys. The Bible teaches us that he is the key. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is the key to the kingdom of God. Jesus says in John chapter 8, he says, I am the door. He is the key to the kingdom of God. You want to get in the kingdom of God? Listen, there is no other way, there is no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved than Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us. He is the key to heaven. And by the way, don't leave this place if you don't know him because the door has been opened. He is the key. He is the way. He's not only the key to the kingdom, Jesus is the key into the presence of God. The Bible says when Jesus was crucified on the cross that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What did that represent? It represented now no barrier that you and I have access Uh, to Christ. We have access into the presence of God. He is the key into the presence of God. Jesus is the key to eternal life. He said, uh, I give to them eternal life, and no one can snatch them out of my hands. Jesus is the key to truth and knowledge. Jesus said, I am the truth. He didn't say, I am a truth. The the Bible sometimes, you know, uh, uh, our culture sometimes says, uh, well, that's your truth. I'm living out my truth. Have you heard that? The Bible says there's only truth, and Jesus is the truth. Everything is to be compared against that. He said, I am the way. I am the 
truth and I am the life. And all of those are connected, by the way. Jesus is the key to truth and knowledge, you see. Jesus is the key to your life. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come, listen, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He said, the thief, the thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy. The enemy of your soul wants to destroy you, to destroy your life, to destroy your effectiveness. But Jesus says, I am the key to your life. I've come that you might have life. Uh, He didn't come to rob us of life. He came to give us life. Jesus is the key to victory. Look at, turn over in your Bible. If you'll fit. (laughs) Turn over chapter 1, verse 18. Well, really, really, the end of 17, he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And then he says, And the living... I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And look at this, class. I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is the key to victory. He said, I have the keys to death and Hades. We uh, conducted a home-going ceremony for one of our folks yesterday here in this place. And one of the things that I emphasize is that uh, this is not the end. Why is it not the end? Because of that statement right there. Jesus said, I hold the keys to life and death. That's what he said. And because he holds the keys, we have hope beyond this life. Jesus is the key to victory. Do you want victory over the grave? It's only found in Jesus. So the first idea that he's giving, and te- he's giving to them and reaffirming to them, he starts off by say- saying, I have all authority and I have all power. I wonder today, do you need power for living? It's Jesus that has the power you need. It's Jesus that opens and uh, shuts and no one can prevent him. He's in control. That's the kind of power that he has. That's the kind of authority that he has. And guess why he's telling them? He's wanting them to know, as you'll see in the second thing I want you to note, he he wants them to understand how much power he does. And you know what? that, That same power, the same authority that was available to these Christians 2,000 years ago is available to you today. He wants you to know that. But God doesn't open and shut doors whimsically. God God doesn't just open doors to open doors. God doesn't just close doors to to close doors. He, He doesn't do that carelessly. No, He opens and He shuts doors in our lives purposely. He does it on purpose. He's telling them, look, I know the common statement to all of these churches is, I know. I know. I know what's going on. I know the good stuff. I know the bad stuff. So here's what he's saying. So I don't capriciously, I don't whimsically, I don't carelessly open doors. I don't just say, okay, here's the door. Uh, Let me open this one. No. When God opens a door, it's purposeful. In your life, when there's a door open, it's purposeful. When God closes a door, it's purposeful. Many years ago, I was praying about God uh, opening a door, and, and I, I, or whether I should step through a door. Let me rephrase that, that, that I thought God had opened. But I didn't know whether I should step through that door. And I'm praying, God, would you show me? And God, if I'm not supposed to step through that door, would you close it? And he did. 
And I got depressed. Because I thought, well, God, you shut the door. And my, I told Allison that. I said, why? I asked God to close the door if I'm not supposed to step through the door. And God closed the door. And she said, think about it. Think about it. If God closed the door and you ask him to close the door, isn't that a good thing? But now listen, when God closes doors in your life, sometimes the devil will try to confuse you then and say, well, don't you feel bad now? You, you, he closed the door. You ask him to close it, and he closed it, and now you feel you're, you're discouraged or depressed. Instead, rejoice and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for shutting a door that I would have walked through that I shouldn't walk through. Thank you for closing a door. I was telling a man about how I came here. I was talking in conversation recently about how I came here with a, a family, a couple. And, and I said, you know, I, I, uh, God did some strange thing. He shut some doors that, that, that if he hadn't have closed, I wouldn't have come here. And I look back and I say, thank God Almighty you shut those doors. I was about to step through some other doors. And God closed them. Unknowingly, it's a long story that you don't need to hear. No, you really don't. But at least to the next thing, do you need power? You need power? Well, listen, look at the next thing, the potential of the church. Verse 8. Here it is, the phrase, I know your works. But then notice he makes this statement. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to show you something about this. This is an incredible statement. You see, their culture was dark, and, and their culture was so pagan that Jesus even said, I know you have but little power. That is, you say, isn't that a criticism? No, that wasn't a criticism at all. Here's what Jesus was saying to them when he said, I know you have but a little power. He was saying, the culture is so dark, and because there are just so few of you, a remnant, really, he said, I know you have, you, you have little power when it comes to influence in the darkness. Are you with me? And so he says, I know you have a little power, but he said, I have opened a door for you. Because you have so little power, I've opened a door for you. And, and Jesus knows that you and I can't make it on our own. He knew that they couldn't make it on their own. And so here's what he did. He said, here's what he did. He said, I've opened a door for you that, that would provide for them spiritual power, our potential as God's people, our potential as Christians is found in accessing the power that we just spoke about. Now watch, stay with me. So God opened a door of access. Of access to what? The door that he's talking about here refers to the continuous access that they would have to the power of God. You see, our potential is tied to his power, not our giftedness not our abilities. And so he says, here's what I'm going to do. I know you have but a little power, but what I'm going to do, and I have all power, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to open a door that the world can't close. No man can shut it. I'm going to open a door that you will have access to me. You will be in direct line with me and my power so that you can live and follow me. Isn't that an incredible thought? That God says, I'm going to give you access to power. The world doesn't have that access. 
but I'm going to open a door where you will have access because I have created you with potential and purpose. Now, why did he do it for them? There are two reasons that he opened that door for them. Number one, because they had kept his word. He says, makes it very clear twice that they had kept his word. Why? What gave them access? What gave them entry through this doorway to the power of God? It was the fact that they had kept his word. We sometimes want the power of God. We just don't want to practice the word of God. But he said, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of a culture that was growing darker and pagan, and, and he says, I want to tell you something, I'm going to give you entrance into a door that they can't control. I control it. It is a source of power, and I'm going to give you access to that power because you've kept my word. God honors, he honors his word, and he honors his people that keep his word. He didn't say it's going to be tough. Did you notice he didn't say, and I'm going to make the powers of darkness back off. He just said, I'm going to give you a different kind of power. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He said, I'm going to give you access to that spirit power. They had kept his word. The second reason he gave them this kind of access was because he, they had not denied his name. They were not ashamed of his name. And by the way, at the end, and I'll, I'll close with this, they, it talks about his name being written upon them. But it says, he, he says, look, you've kept my word. You have not denied my name. In other words, they were not ashamed of Jesus. Can I ask you, are you ashamed of Jesus? Are, are you ashamed of him? And that's what he said. You haven't been ashamed in the midst of a culture that that despise the name of Jesus. You hadn't been ashamed of me. You have kept and obeyed my word. And he said, as a result of that, I'm going to give you access to power because you have a little power, but I'm going to give you access to great power. We've often heard about somebody, somebody who has great potential. Have, you, you've heard that, you know, boy, they have great potential, great potential. And then you watch them and they never materialize, right? Well, they had such potential. And then they become not people who had great potential. They had people that that we look back and say, they had so much potential. Vance Havner said, it is not a matter of great strength. It's not a matter of great ability. It is a matter of great dependability. That's what makes the difference. That's what causes us to, to reach the potential that God has created us for. Samson had great ability, but he had poor dependability. A little strength, Havner says, faithfully used means more than much strength flashily and fitfully used. Their potential and our potential was then and is today to be connected to the power of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ opens access through the Spirit of God to his followers when we obey his word and when we are not ashamed of his name. In other words, Jesus' message to them and his message to us is that uh, our potential is tied directly to his power. They were weak. They were weak. Do you ever feel weak? They were weak. But listen, don't miss this. Weakness doesn't mean useless to God. Weakness doesn't mean that we are useless. I believe that God loves it when our weakness forces us to depend on Him. 
you say, you think God really loves that? Well, listen to how the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. He said, but, uh, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power, his power, is made perfect in what? Our weakness. Paul says, so he said, my grace is sufficient to you. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Paul said, I'm going to boast about my weakness because, uh, or, or so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Remember what he said, because when I'm weak, his power can rest upon me. One New Year's Day in the Tournament of Roses Parade, one of the floats, a beautiful float, a massive float, suddenly sputtered and quit. It was out of gas. And the whole parade uh, was held up until someone (laughs) could get a couple of cans of gas and put in the the float uh, to get it uh, uh, fired back up and moving. The whole parade was stopped. And the amusing thing about the story is that the float was sponsored by one of the largest oil firms in the world. With all their vast access to resources, the truck was out of gas. There are many Christians. They have great God-intended potential, but they've run out of gas. And they They've run out of gas because they stopped accessing the vast resources of the power of God, and they're trying to live for God in their own strength, and they have little power. And they're trying to, with good intentions, to follow God, and they're weak and worn out, and they're trying to just go through the motions and the routine, and their tanks are empty, and they've sputtered and almost quit. Why? Because they're not tapping in to the vast resources of the power of God. I ask you this morning, how is your spiritual gas tank? The truth is, there is a door of access to the power of God. And Jesus said it is imperative that I go to the Father because if I don't go to the Father, I can't send to you the power. He said, but if I go, I'll send him to you, and he'll not be with you. I've been with you for three years. I've been with you, but he will be in you. The power. Do you know why they made the, uh, the church? Why did they gather in Acts? And why did they have to remain in Jerusalem? Do you remember what it says in Acts chapter 1? They remained in Jerusalem. They were told to go and stay there. They weren't told to go, go and reach the world at that stage. They were just told to go and wait in, in Jerusalem. Do you know why? He said, wait until you be filled from on high with the power of the Spirit of God. And then shortly thereafter, they were in the upper room. And then they were sent into the whole world. They weren't sent into the world in their power. They were sent in the world after they received the power. The problem for many believers is they're trying to go into the world. They're trying to live for God with good intentions, but they're trying to do it, and their tanks are empty because they're not tapping in to the vast resource of the Holy Spirit that has been given to them in Christ. Let me show you a third thing that we learned from this church, and that is the problems of the culture. Verse 9, notice what Jesus said, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan 
who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. He called them the synagogue of, uh, of Satan. Now, now, let me tell you what's happening. There were Jews in Philadelphia who were persecuting the believers. They were persecuting Judaizers. Some believe it was the Judaizers themselves who pretended to, to uh, affirm Christ on one level but denied him through the Judaism that they espoused. And they were claiming to be Jews. These were claiming to be Jews. But notice pretty strong, harsh words that Jesus has. They were claiming to be Jews, the chosen people, the followers of God. But Jesus says they were not. They had rejected the Son of God, the very one who came to reveal the God that they claimed to follow. And therefore, they were lying. Jesus said that. They lie. Jesus calls them an assembly of Satan. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? And so his message, so what is his message in the midst of this kind of culture? And they were, being, they were being assaulted on all sides for their faith in Christ. And Jesus' message of hope to these true believers was to keep living faithfully. And he said something. Did you look, look on in verse 9 after he said, but they lied. But he said, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus' word of encouragement in the midst of the, this uh, a hostile, antagonistic kind of age that they were living was keep on living faithfully. And if you do, I will, I will vindicate you before your uh, uh, persecutors. In time, I will vindicate you. Sometimes it's hard to stay faithful because we feel like uh, we're being treated unfairly. And I want to tell you, in in this life, you're going to have tribulation, Jesus said. But he said, be of good cheer. I've overcome this life. I've overcome the world. But sometimes we feel like, well, we're not being treated fairly, fairly or justly. And the fact is, you can look at that a lot of ways. The culture, never expect a lost culture to treat you fairly for Christ. This is spiritual war. There's a war going on behind the scenes, and so don't ever expect that, all right? And on the other hand, don't ever ask God for fairness, now think with me for a second. Don't ask God for fairness. Say, well, well, the world doesn't treat us fairly. The world doesn't treat me fairly. I, I have people that don't treat me fairly because I'm a, a follower of Christ or something. Listen, listen, uh, that's understandable, and that's consistent with what Jesus said. If the world hated me, it will hate you also. But then don't go to the other extreme and say, God, give me fairness. You don't want fairness from God. You want grace and mercy from God. God, don't give me what I deserve. God, give me grace and mercy. But Jesus' message of hope was in the midst of operating with this, what he called synagogue of Satan. What he's really saying is the influence of, in the world of the devil right there where they were living. And he was saying, I want to tell you something. In time, if you'll live faithfully, if you'll wait on me, I will vindicate you before your persecutors. But it'll be on his time frame. We must never forget something. People, listen, never forget this that God does not always settle his accounts on our time schedule. Thank goodness for that. In fact, there are some accounts that won't be settled until we're all in heaven. But they will be settled. And so he tells them, I'll vindicate you. He said, I will, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're in Jews who lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet. 
which is the idea not only of vindication, but is that God is telling them, I want to encourage you because I will humble your persecutors and cause them to see, notice he says, how much I love you. God loves the faithful. And at the right time, he will exalt them before their enemies. When is that time, Pastor? I don't know. I know in Revelation it talks about a time will come when the saints who were martyred will cry out, God, how long, how long, how long uh, will it be until you vindicate and justify? But it will happen. It's going to happen. And that's what he's telling them. You're enduring faithfully. Keep on faithfully enduring. At the right time, the time that is fixed, I will vindicate you and I will humble your those who persecute you. You know, it's easy to think that God's just not watching or that God's not aware of our challenges, the, you know, the things you face um, uh, in your home, maybe, or, or that God is not really noticing what's going on in your school or in your work or in your community. But rem- remember, remember one of the repeated uh, 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 statements in this entire series that I mentioned just a few minutes ago is, I know, I know. God knows the problems you face. He knows the ridicule that you take. He knows that the devil attacks you. Friends, he knows. Never forget, he knows. And God doesn't forget, he knows. But there's a fourth thing that we can learn from the church here at Philadelphia, and that is we can learn about the preservation of the church. He says in verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now, let me just do a little exegesis here uh, for you because this verse has been variously uh, misapplied. The thrust of this verse is is against the interpretation of being taken away from their great trial. It instead, in the Greek, denotes being preserved through whatever trial they were going to face. The Greek word here for keep... The Greek word for keep is uh, terio, and it actually means to keep an eye on, to watch, to guard over. More specifically, it means literally to cause a state of existence to continue. You see, the exalted Christ promises that the situation of these Philadelphian Christians will not be adversely affected by the hour of great trial that is approaching. Why? Because Christ will watch over them and preserve them through. There's only one other place in the New Testament where that statement is used. It's in John 17, 15. It is the only other place where this statement in the Greek is made. And it is a part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, it is used this way. My prayer is not that you take them, Father, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It is their preservation in trial that is taught. Now, this promise of preservation in this passage then that we are looking at is consistent with the the promise or the prayer of Jesus in John 17, 15. 
And it is precisely because the church was faithful to Christ in time of trial that he, in turn, will be faithful to them in time of their great trial. So let me share four thoughts with you here. Our world is under the domain of the devil. Ephesians 6, we're under the domain of the devil. That is God allowed, by the way. God has allowed that. And so consequently, when you live in a broken world under the reign of the devil that is allowed by God, you're going to experience the wrath of the devil. He'll pour his wrath out. And by the way, I I think he loves to pour it out on believers to discourage us just out of spite to God. He hates God that much. And he loves to pour his wrath out on us uh, so that he can undermine our effectiveness. But we live in this domain. And by the way, in this domain, because it's under his, his um, uh, uh, rule right now, and you say, is it really? Yeah, go read Ephesians 6, and God has allowed it. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Do you remember what the devil said? Look out at all the kingdoms of the world. He said, I'll give these to you. The devil said that to Jesus. I'll give these to you if you'll... But Bow down and follow me. You see, God has allowed him for a time until the consummation of the age to have domain over this world. And because of that, we experience his wrath. We don't experience God's wrath. Now listen, we experience the discipline of God whom the Lord loves. He disciplines. But we don't live under his wrath. We've not been designed for his wrath. The Bible teaches us that. But what God does promise to do is help take us through the wrath of the enemy. And sometimes it's complete uh, kind of protection in the midst of that wrath. That's the idea that's going on right here in this passage. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown, you know, into the furnace. They weren't taken out of the furnace. They were thrown into the furnace. But guess who joined them? Jesus. And the form of the fourth one that I see is like the Son of God, right? He was there in the fire with them. Our world's under the domain of the devil. God has allowed it. And consequently, we sometimes experience the wrath of the devil, but not the wrath of God. We are disciplined by God, but we don't experience his wrath. Jesus has taken the wrath of God away from us on the cross. Now, there's bad news for the world. Judgment is coming. Just as God has allowed this world to be under the domain of our arch enemy, God has also uh, initiated a coming judgment. There's judgment coming. But his children will be preserved from the wrath of God in the coming judgment. We'll be accountable for our lives in the judgment of believers and rewards, but we will be spared from the wrath of God. Again, Jesus has already taken it, but the the world will not be spared from that wrath. The wrath of God will be poured out eventually. And then there's good news. There's good news, and the good news is that God loves his children, that God loves his church. Jesus died for it. Jesus said, I will build my church. And Jesus preserves it. Why did he say that he would protect the believers at Philadelphia? 
Well, it goes back to what we talked about a minute ago because they kept his word. And he says they patiently endured. Oh, Lord, how long? How long? Do you know what the early church called the return of Christ? Called it the blessed hope. You know why they called it the blessed hope? They wanted out of here. And they were suffering and they were being persecuted and they wanted out. And so they said, come, Lord Jesus, come, come back. We're looking, we're waiting, we're watching. Come back, return. You're our blessed hope to deliver us, to take us away. Are you keeping his word? Do you believe his word? You know, tied to the idea of believing his word is the idea of keeping it. If you don't really keep God's word, you don't really believe God's word. That's why Jesus would say to the churches, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear. Because our proclivity is that we can hear things, but we don't really receive what we hear. And so he says to them, he says, look, do you hear? Do you understand? Are you keeping his word? I want to ask you this morning, are you keeping his word? Folks, the birth pangs of the return of Jesus Christ are all around us. More than ever before, more than I've ever seen in my entire life of ministry. Over four decades of ministry, I don't think I've ever seen birth pangs more pronounced. Now, birth pangs aren't the return of Jesus, but they signal, you know, they signal his return. And that's why it's all the more important that you move from just knowing God's word to practicing God's word, believing God's word. That's why. That's why they are commended, because they believed his word. And this is where the choice comes in. Seven churches, seven choices. This is where their choice came in. They had to choose to continue to endure patiently and faithfully and to continue to practice God's word, even when the world, the culture, their friends, their family pulled and pushed them to give up or give in. Don't give up. Don't give in. Remain faithful. Faithful to the end. That's the choice. Would they continue? And that's the choice that you and I have today. 2,000 years later, are we going to live faithfully keeping the Word of God even in the midst of, uh, of uh, an age that is hostile to the truth of God, that wants to reject Christ, that wants to reject the Word of God? Are you going to let family, friends uh, uh, pull or push you away? Are you going to let the culture drive you from God or drive you to compromise? We have that choice just like they did. We can either trust God's word and obey it and endure until he comes, or we can say, no, like Demas who loved the things of this world, the scripture says, and departed, deserted Paul. Billy Graham wrote a book. I pulled it off my shelf this week. He wrote a book about how to persevere through suffering until the return of Christ. And the book is titled, Till Armageddon. Armageddon's the last thing, right? It's the last thing. And the title of his book is Till Armageddon. I bought it many years ago, uh, back when books were cheap. And it is a perspective on suffering, teaching believers how shall we live until the return of Christ. And in the flyleaf of the book, it states this, Are you ready for the days ahead? 
What will it take to survive the personal turmoils, the economic chaos, the dangerous world political climate now emerging on a scale perhaps unparalleled in human history? And that's written in the 1980s. And then Billy Graham goes on to say, the human race may well be heading toward the climax of the tears, the hurts, and wounds of the centuries, headed toward Armageddon. And then the book says, these are the words of Dr. Billy Graham after an exhaustive study of the scriptures on the subject of our future. And so it really causes us to ask this question, is faithfulness worth it? Don't you think there were probably some people in the church of Philadelphia that were saying, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? You ever feel like that? God, is it really worth it? It's worth it. It's worth it. And the reason we know is the last thing I want to share with you, and that is because of the promise to the conquerors. So in the midst of all of this, There's a promise made to the one who conquers. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. That's what he said. Is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. God says, I'm going to identify those who conquer It is a promise and cherished reward in the kingdom of God. Look, it's kind of like God's heavenly congressional medal of honor. I don't know that everybody is going to have this. He's talking about to the conquerors. Now, this is a couple of times he's talked to conquerors in the seven churches, you know. But I know these people, and I know those who conquer that endure patiently and live faithfully, that one day, one day, he says, I'm going to write the name of my God on them in the kingdom, in heaven. And I'm going to write on them the name of the new city which comes down out of heaven, and I'm going to put my own name on them. Listen, this is God's honoring process for those who patiently lived for him and endured faithfully to the end. And for all eternity, these are the people who endured and they will have his name upon them that will be a unique identifier in the kingdom of God. I think those who conquer, I think the others that it talks about in Revelation uh, that, that conquered, I think we're going to see them and we're going to say, wow, look at that. They had the name, they've got the name of God. Now, we're going to have the, the imprint of God upon us, and, and, but they're going to have something unique because they conquered. They conquered. They stayed faithful when others didn't stay faithful. They endured when others didn't I- endure. And God says, I'm going to write on them my name. And so he says to Philadelphia, I know it's tough right now. And maybe for you it's tough. Maybe there's some tough stuff going on. And I just want to say to you, endure patiently. Live faithfully. Remember, Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, you be one of those that was a conqueror and is honored with the name of God Almighty upon you, the name of Jesus Christ stamped upon you. When you're in the kingdom, it'll be an identifier. And you won't say, well, I got this stuff on me. You'll say, I want everybody to know 
that I'm a conqueror. We are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ who loved us, the Bible says. That's how you become a conqueror. So it comes down to the choice. The choice, am I going to, am I going to live faithfully? You're not called to live faithfully for your neighbor. You're not called to live faithfully for your other family. You're not called to live faithful for the church. You are the church. You're not called to live faithfully for the preacher. You're called to live faithfully for Jesus. And by the way, when you live faithfully for Jesus, guess what happens? The church becomes faithful for Jesus. Because you are the church. You are the temple of the living God. And so your choice is, am I going to live faithful? Am I going to, to you say, well, I'm not, I'm not facing the kinds of things that they were, they were facing. I understand that. But you may. But you're facing some other things that are challenging for you or that, that cause you to want to just say, I just, I, I, I just can't do this anymore. Don't give up. You say, I keep failing. Don't give up. Confess and start over. Listen, live for Him one day at a time, one hour at a time, one moment at a time. Be a conqueror. Be a conqueror right now. You can be a conqueror right now. You can say, God, I'm going to live for you right now. And then 10 minutes later, you may have to say it again, God, I'm going to live for you right now. But here's the lesson for us. Are you ready? The lesson on your outline is this. Stay faithful to the name of Christ and to God's Word. There's a story of a Japanese soldier, Lieutenant Hiro Onada. And he was left on the island Lubang in the Philippines on Christmas Day, 1944. And he was given one command by his commanding officer, and this is the command he was given. Carry on the mission even if Japan surrenders. Onada continued his war alone on that island for years. And all efforts to convince him to surrender or to, uh, uh, to capture him, all of them failed. He ignored the messages. They used loudspeakers. The war is over. Japan has surrendered. The war is over. He ignored the messages from the loudspeakers. He uh, uh, ignored the message that was blared that says, Japan is now an ally of the United States. They even used airplanes to drop leaflets over the jungle area where they believed he was staying, leaflets that were announcing that uh, he could now return to Japan because Japan had surrendered and they were allies of the U.S. He refused to believe and he refused to sender, uh, surrender. Over the years, he lived uh, off of the land and he raided fields and gardens of the local citizens in order to live. He lived in a cave, we're told, and almost half a million dollars was spent trying to locate and convince him to surrender. 13,000 men were used to try to locate him. And finally they found him on March the 10th, 1974, almost 30 years after World War II ended, Onada surrendered his rusty sword, and what convinced him to do so was a personal command from his former superior officer who was still alive. And that superior officer said, you can stand down and read to him the terms of the ceasefire. Onada handed his sword to President Marcos of the Philippines. 
and Marcos pardoned him. The war was over. Onada was 22, 22 years old when he was left on that island. And when he left it, he was a prematurely aged 52-year-old man. You have to commend him for his faithfulness, amen? You have to commend him for staying true to the command and the commission and the mission that he had been given. How much more important, dear friends, is it for you and I to remain faithful to our commander who has given us orders to be faithful until he returns and takes us to be with him? How much more so for us? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that our hope is in you. But Father, help us not to become so impatient that we throw in the towel or we quit or we just stop trying to, to access the power. Thank you for the power that is ours. And Father, let us be like the church at Philadelphia, full of this power through the Spirit of God so that we might stand and carry on the mission that you've entrusted to us. Now, Father, for any that are watching through television or live stream, listening by radio, any in this audience who've never put their trust in you, let this be that day. Let them move from just knowing about to knowing you. Let them call on you saying, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need you, and I call upon you right now. Thank you for offering me eternal life. I receive it, and I receive Jesus, and I receive the Spirit of God to come in and empower me to live. If you pray that prayer, he'll hear it. He's promised to in his word. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've just been trying. You've got a little power, but it's not the power of the Spirit operating and the authority God himself has opened the door of access to you to tap into the vast resources of the Holy Spirit. Maybe this morning you need to do just that. Maybe you say, Lord, I'm tired of living in my own strength. Father, I need your strength. Father, thank you for the Spirit of God that's mine in Christ. But Lord, I haven't been tapping into those powerful resources. And today, Father, I renew my commitment to trust and depend on you, not to depend on myself, not to rely on my own strength, but to look to you for your strength and yours alone. Father, hear my prayer. And Father, I know you hear the prayers of those who've offered these. And so now, Father, take them to the next place and the next step. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me for our invitation? As always, I'm going to be here at the front. Our staff are going to be on these aisles. And I want to invite you to slip out balcony or ground floor. Come forward to make your decision. Maybe you want to come forward and pray. You're praying for someone. You're praying about something. Come and use this altar. Take advantage of that. Maybe you need a church family, a church home. Come and say, I want to join a Ridgecrest. I want Ridgecrest to be my church home. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I prayed that prayer to trust Christ. Or I need to. Would you slip out? You come and receive him as your Savior. If you're watching by live stream, there are instructions on your screen what to do. By the way, you can make your decisions in a lot of ways here. There's a tear-off panel. You can do that. But let me first invite you to slip out and come forward.
Would you do that now? As Brother Aaron leads us, we're waiting. You come on right now.